The text for our sermon this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4. We will read verses 12 through 22. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened, when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child due to be delivered, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said, Do not fear, for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for their children's sermon. Well, the story that we just read tells us of the worst thing that can happen to the church, that God can leave. Imagine something really sad, like like your grandparents have died. Would you go to their house after that? I mean, you might in the beginning to, you know, pick up those things that, that people want to keep, but after that, no one would go because grandma and grandpa aren't there, and the fact that they're not there will just make you sad. Well, our story is sadder, much sadder than that. Israel took God's holy ark out onto the battlefield. They acted like it was a lucky rabbit's foot. But God will not let himself be treated that way. He's holy. And so his people must always show him respect. So in order to teach his people that lesson, God let the evil Philistines capture his ark. Now the people couldn't worship God. Worship in those days depended on having the ark. You see, the priest would offer sacrifices for sins, but he had to collect some of the blood from the lamb for a very special part of the service. He collected some blood in a special golden bowl, and he would go into that special holy room of the tent church with that blood, And he would pour it on the lid of the ark, right in the middle spot. The spot where the wings of the angels touched. That spot was called the mercy seat. You remember that from last week? 
That worship service taught the people a beautiful gospel lesson. It showed them that they had disobeyed God's law. Remember the Ten Commandments? Those stone plates that had God's law on them, that God wrote Himself. Those stone plates of the Ten Commandments were inside the ark. So when the priest sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, it was teaching the people that even though they had disobeyed God's law and deserved to die, God would show them mercy. In other words, he wouldn't punish them in hell. If someone else died who had no sins and died in their place instead of them. That's why the priest put the blood on the mercy seat. It was on top of the ark, and inside the ark were the Ten Commandments. But now that ark had been captured. No sacrifices could be made. You could go to the church tent now, but without the ark, it was just a tent. Now there are two important lessons for us in this story. First, we should never do anything that makes God want to leave. When His Spirit tells our hearts that what we're thinking about or what we are saying or what we are doing or planning to do is sin, then we should not fight against His Spirit and ignore His warning. When His Word is being preached, we shouldn't daydream or ignore the message. We shouldn't skip church. We should never do anything that says to God, Your word isn't important to me and neither is your house. The people of Israel had done that. And that's why God let his ark be taken away from them. Secondly, sometimes the things that seem like great disasters are actually good for God's children. When the ark was taken away, it looked like the biggest disaster in the world. Especially when three of the priests died and 34,000 soldiers of Israel died at the same time that the ark was taken. But Hannah's prayer was true. God kills and God makes alive. God was getting rid of all of the evil leaders of his church so his people could worship him properly again. God killed these evil ministers and even shut his church down for a while so that when it opened back up again, everything would be new and right again. It looked like a huge disaster, but it was really a great blessing. We should always remember that. We'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who did speak of old unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. The events of our passage are such a watershed moment 
in the history of the Old Testament church, that they are memorialized forever in song, in Psalm 78. I want you to listen to verses 59 through 64, and think of what we read a few minutes ago. This is the Holy Spirit's own interpretation of those events. When God heard this, He was furious and greatly abhorred Israel, so that He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent He had placed among men, and delivered His strength into captivity and His glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave His people over to the sword and was furious with His inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Well, verse 61 is a clear reference to the ark of God, God's glory taken into captivity, given into the enemy's hand. And verse 65 is a reference to the wife of Phineas. She made no lamentation for her fallen husband. Rather, she lamented the loss of God's glory among his people with the capture of the ark. This is a moment in Israel's history that is mentioned in future years as a sign of God's hand against unfaithfulness. It's mentioned in Psalm 78. It's also mentioned in Jeremiah 7. Our outline is very simple, dark, darker, and darker still. One thing I've learned is to never say things can't possibly get any worse. This is true both in society and in the church. Every time politics and society sink to a new low, and I think people can't possibly get any stupider than this, they're usually happy to prove me wrong in very short order. Every time I see churches or ministers engaged in ridiculous things that seem to be the absolute nadir of foolishness, it always gets worse. And in the events before us this morning, we learn this painful lesson. So let's set up the scene. The Old Testament church, which is supposed to be God's kingdom, kingdom, is behaving like a libertarian democracy. Instead of God ruling his people by his word, every man does what is right in his own eyes. And this has gone on for decades. The current ruling judge of Israel is a 98-year-old priest whose family life is a nightmare. As nice and decent a man as Eli may have been, he was a lousy church officer. He let his two sons, priests, get away with murder. The bulk of the church has simply decided to just quit coming to the tabernacle for worship. Better to forsake worship, they think, than to suffer abuse at the hands of these two monsters of iniquity. Hophni and Phineas. The two young priests were subjecting worshipers to extortion. You know, give me what I ask for, or you don't get your animal sacrificed, bucko. And if anyone was bold enough to appeal to God's law to rebuke the vice of these men, they just beat them up and take what they wanted anyway. And on top of this, they were openly harassing and sexually assaulting young ladies right there in the tabernacle. Words failed to convey just how despicable these men were. And worst of all, when 98-year-old Eli dies, Hophni is next in line to be high priest. 
These were very dark times for the church. But at least Eli, ineffectual as he was, was still alive. The frail silver cord of Eli's life was all that kept the church from falling into the hands of the degenerate Hophni. There was literally no prospect of hope for God's people. Now, later in 1 Samuel, we will learn that Samuel had a circuit that he traveled around the land preaching and teaching. Presumably, he was off in one of these cities when these events transpired. Samuel's absence from Shiloh was another dark aspect of the day. Samuel wasn't omnipresent. As positive as his influence may have been, it could only be felt where he was physically. It certainly, in the, at least in the beginning of his ministry, it took a lot of long years and a lot of trips around his preaching circuit before his influence finally began to bear fruit. It's not unlikely that Hophni and Phinehas would have just killed Samuel if he had opposed them. So maybe his absence was as much for his sake as it was for the churches. Things were really dark in Israel. The lamp of the tabernacle. This was a sign of the light of God's word shining among his people. Eli as priest was tasked and his sons were supposed to tend to that lamp. As a foreshadowing of Christ, the light that lighteth every man which cometh into the world. But the very man charged by God with guarding that light, had pawned the duty off on a preteen boy. Sure, little Samuel must have been cute, serving in the tabernacle, wearing his little linen ephod. The ephod was a special robe worn by the ministers of the tabernacle. And every year when his parents would come to visit, Hannah would bring a new ephod for Samuel to wear. He was a growing boy, he needed bigger clothes. It must have looked cute to see little Samuel, this little boy, engaged in the work of the tabernacle. Yeah, it's cute, but it's also an indictment against Eli's family. Eli knew that if he left this duty to Hophni and Phinehas, they would neglect it. They loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. When the only thing keeping the lamp of God lit in your land is a preteen, things are pretty bad. Ye are the light of the world. But if the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Dark as things were in Israel, they were about to get darker. Eli had been unimpressive in hindering the desecration of the Holy of Holies and the carrying of the ark into battle. And now things were even darker. Now the tabernacle is nothing but a tent. All the furniture of the tabernacle was only of value as accessories to the worship of God, whose presence was signified by the ark. Now that the ark was gone, Eli doesn't even stay inside the tabernacle anymore. The gutted holy of holies is as common and profane a place as the roadside where he sits waiting for news of the battle. We can also be fairly sure that Eli did not expect the news he was about to get that day. Israel had a long history of victories in impossible battles. The walls of Jericho collapse without a fight. Gideon leads an army of 300 men to victory against a force the scripture describes as 
as numerous as locusts, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. If past history were anything to go by, then Israel should just go out, vanquish the Philistines, and return with the ark, singing and dancing for joy. But those great victories of the past all had a common denominator that this battle did not have. In those cases, the church was fighting the Lord's battles. In this case, they were marching according to the desires of their own hearts, fighting their own battle, and living in flagrant unfaithfulness to the covenant. Now let's go to the battlefield. Israel's misguided hope is exposed as the illusion that it is. To their surprise, they find that the symbol of God's rule does not carry the reality. And they treated the ark in a Romish ex opere operato way. In other words, as if the physical thing carried with it its own efficacy. This is how Rome treats the sacraments. By the simple act of saying the magic words and performing the actions, God's grace is conveyed without any regard to God himself. The acts themselves are the efficacious source of the power. Neither the faith of the recipient nor of the minister is relevant. So, in order to disabuse Israel of incipient popery, it pleases God to let the ark, with which his name is so intimately associated, be seized by the heathen Philistines. The Philistines carry the day. They kill 4,000 Israelites, and then in round two, they kill 30,000, among whom are the two priests. And to top it off, they carry off the Ark of God. What were Hophni and Phinehas thinking as they witnessed the Ark being captured? When they realized that Israel's defeat was inevitable. There's no dark doubt that the ark would have been out in front of the battle lines. Surrounded or preceded by the bravest men of Israel. These priests assumed that the Philistines would be so overawed by Israel's lucky rabbit's foot. That they would tuck their tails and run. But nothing of the sort happened. Can you imagine the feeling of Israel and her priests when they realized what was happening? The Philistine army advanced like a hot knife through warm butter. Israel's men retreat. They run away from the battlefield so cowardly and so far that they're described as fleeing every man to his own tent. It's like saying they retreated so far they all went home. And you wonder... Was there enough conscience left in Hophni and Phinehas to flash into their minds that God, whose Holy Spirit they had vexed, was turned to be their enemy and was now fighting against them? Did their lives flash before their eyes, giving them even a momentary glimpse of the whole iniquity of a lifetime? Did any guilt rush in upon their souls and overwhelm them with its gravity? Did they feel the hopelessness of men who have been caught in their own devices as men whose sin has found them out? Do they feel the reality that all hope is gone, that death is inevitable, and after death the judgment? Well, there is not a single word in this chapter or in the preceding that gives us the slightest glimmer of hope, the least sliver of optimism. 
Nothing we read gives us anything from which the least inference in their favor can be drawn. They died as they lived in the very act of dishonoring God. They died with the weapons of rebellion in their hands and the stains of iniquity on their souls, hurried off to the presence of the judge of the universe. In one fell swoop, their recklessness is swept away. All their sophistry, all their refuge of lies, all their contempt for the notion of divine retribution for sin is blasted with the east wind. In a moment, they are confronted with their doom. They have just been seated, as my dad would say, on a greased slide to hell. They see better than Samuel or Eli the truth of God's pronouncement. Them that honor me, I will honor. But they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. It was dark when these men were living. Their lives were nothing but contempt of God and His law. But in their deaths, since 30,000 other men died with them, things have gotten even darker. Because there are things about war that, that we forget, living as we do with inconsequential neighbors. In the 246 years since our nation's founding, there's never been a threat of invasion from Canada or Mexico. There are realities about the aftermath of war that we tend to be ignorant of. First, population declines sharply when a large number of soldiers die. They're all potential fathers. Imagine the impact of 30,000 deaths. The nation's population won't rebound until the current generation of kids grows up, marries, and begins having families of their own. And you'd better hope that no hostile, opportunistic neighbor decides nation decides to take advantage of your dwindling male population and attack you in the next two to three decades. Secondly, since many of the farm, uh, soldiers were farmers by trade, their death is going to cause widespread famine. If no one plants the crops because the farming men have been killed in battle, there's not going to be any food come fall. Thirdly, and directly related to that, dangerous wild animals will multiply and start posing a threat to the people. Since the fields all lie unplanted, wildlife will move right back in, and before you know it, you'll have cougars and wolves and other dangerous animals roaming the formerly safe countryside. Fourthly, and also directly related to that second point, disease spreads rampantly. The combination of survivors with putrefying wounds and the malnutrition from the unplanted fields leads to widespread disease. You think about these things as you read about battles in the Old Testament, and you will notice that the prophets often speak of them. Ezekiel 14.21, they're all lumped together. God's Four severe judgments, Ezekiel calls them. The sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence. War isn't just go out and fight, come home, return to normal, and everything is hunky-dory. There are long-term after-effects of war. And in our text, Israel is about to experience a lot of hardship from having lost 34,000 men to a heartless and aggressive Philistine foe. If you were inclined to say it can't get any worse, you're in for a rude awakening. You ain't seen nothing yet. The church's spiritual starvation, thanks to Hophni and Phinehas, 
is about to manifest itself in physical starvation. Also thanks to Hophni and Phineas. It was dark before the fight and their stupid idea of lugging the ark out onto the battlefield. And things have gotten darker. But the worst is yet to come. It's about to get even darker still. Let's return to Shiloh. Eli must have certainly had a miserable time of it since the ark was hauled off. He must have had many scenes of his life flash before him. He had to have thought of all of the missed opportunities of disciplining his sons. And now they have committed ultimate sacrilege. And he stood there like an ineffectual doormat. Even if he had been coerced into giving his consent to their plan, he would have been plagued by enough twinge of conscience to keep him from praying for the plan's success. You know, when you disobey God's revealed will, you can't then turn around and ask God to bless your schemes. You know that no matter how sincerely you pray, God will not hear you. Poor old blind man of 98 years. All he could do now was tremble for the ark. So he had his official seat moved out of the tabernacle somewhere along the roadside so that he would be the first person to greet any returning soldier. He would be the first to get news of the battle. He was so anxious for the ark that he had to get as close to the battlefield as he could. At last, a man of Benjamin has come into sight on the horizon. His clothes are torn and he has dust on his head. That can only mean bad news. It is a sure sign of disaster. But no one could have guessed the extent of the disaster. And even in the man's description of himself, he appears to be a deserter who ran away from the battle because he saw no point in even fighting anymore. When Eli asked the man who he is, he says, I am he who came from the battle. So far, so good. I am fled today from the battle line. Now, you know nothing good is coming after that introduction. You're not going to hear, I'm a deserter, but hey, I got some really good news. Nothing but disaster can come after that introduction. Disaster number one, Israel has fled before the Philistines. Disaster number two, there has been a great slaughter among the people. Disaster number three, your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the coup de grace, disaster number four, the ark of God is taken. The ark of the covenant, God's throne among his people. The place where the blood of the innocent substitute was poured to satisfy the inexorable justice of God's broken law. The divine symbol with its cherubim and sacred light into which Eli had yearly gone alone to sprinkle the blood of atonement on the mercy seat. And where he had solemnly transacted with God on behalf of the church. That ark was in the hands of the enemy. The ark that no Canaanite or Amalekite had ever touched, that no Midianite or Amorite had ever even seen, upon which no Ammonite or Edomite had ever placed his defiled hands, which had remained safe and secure in Israel's custody throughout all their wanderings in the wilderness and throughout all the perils of war for about the last 470 years, was now torn from their grasp by the wicked and abominable Philistines. And with its capture, perishes all of Israel's hopes, 
all the sacred service, all sacrifice and atonement, all transaction with God is lost. Israel is now a widowed, desolate, and godless people without hope and without God in the world. And it's all come about because they dragged the ark away from its appointed place. They had treated God like a worthless idol, so he let them experience what it was like to rely on a worthless idol. They had profaned God's name in the most profound way possible. And the two sons of the high priest had been the leaders in the blasphemy. And now they have gone to stand and give an account before the throne of the dread sovereign of the universe. These thoughts and more must have passed through Eli's mind as he heard the tragic news of the battle. And then we read, then it happened. When he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. That's disaster number five. Eli died. And even then, the tragedy is not ended. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. And then she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This poor woman, in a far worse situation than even Hannah, at least Elkanah, compromised as he was by the wicked sin of polygamy, was making an attempt to serve the Lord. Phinehas abused the service of the Lord to satisfy his own lusts. He profaned the sacrifices of the Lord to the extent that believers stayed away from the tabernacle rather than allow themselves to be subjected to the humiliation of having to have any interactions with this vile, degenerate blasphemer. He was a married man. And yet the Bible says that he was a sexual predator preying upon the hapless women who were there at the tabernacle to serve the Lord in fulfillment of holy vows. This poor nameless woman was married to an absolute monster. Her spirit had been long broken by the burden of such a heavy load. But we may surmise that she drew at least some comfort from living so near to God's house. She would remember the Lord who commanded Aaron and his sons to bless the people, saying, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. But now, now the ark is taken. All of its services and blessings are gone with it into captivity. When the tribes come up now to Shiloh for the feasts, there will be no joyful and cleansed consciences as in days past. The bullock may burn on the altar, but where is the sanctuary where Jehovah dwells among his people? Where is the mercy seat for the priest to sprinkle with blood? Where is the door by which he emerges to bless the people, having now atoned for them before God? Gone, all gone. O oh, miserable child, 
child born on this day of midnight gloom, ushered into the world on the day when God has departed. What can I name you? What can I say to convey the doom and dishonor of the day of your birth? I will call you Ichabod, which means the glory is gone. For the glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been taken. William Blakey writes on this verse, What an awful impression these scenes convey to us of the overpowering desolation that comes to believing souls with the feeling that God has taken his departure. Tell us that the sun is no longer to shine. Tell us that neither dew nor rain shall ever fall again to refresh the earth. Tell us that a cruel and savage nation is to reign unchecked and unchallenged over all the families of a people once free and happy. You convey no such image of desolation as when you tell pious hearts that God has departed from their community. Well, let us learn the obvious lesson. To do nothing to provoke such a tragedy. It is only when the Spirit of God is resisted and dishonored that He departs. When He is driven away. Israel removed God's ark from its holy place. And so God completed the act for them. If the ark abides not in the holy of holies, then it is not the ark of the covenant. God is either honored above all or He is not your God. Beware of anything that grieves him. Everything that interferes with his gracious action on your soul. Beware of anything that would lead God to say, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. May our prayer be the cry of David who said, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. In closing, I just want to point out an aspect to these events that we are prone to overlook. God saves his church in the way of judgment. I quoted Isaiah 127 to this effect last Sunday. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment. Those multiplied tragedies were truly the outpouring of God's fiery wrath against evil men who had profaned his name among the heathen. But it was also a demonstration of God's loving care for his faithful remnant. Now they may not have seen it at the time, but the day would reveal what the night had concealed. In the judgment of the wicked, God saves his elect. No true believer may have seen this judgment as the blessing that it was, but Zion was being redeemed with judgment. The Lord kills and makes alive. How else could God restore pure worship to his church unless he first stripped from them all corrupt and polluted worship? In one fell swoop, God removes all the vestiges of the perverted religion associated with Eli's house. If and when... God returns to Israel, they will rebuild from the ground up. All the evil of the past has been washed away. In his love and mercy to his elect remnant, God killed Hophni, Phinehas, Eli, 34,000 rebels, and shut down the tabernacle until further notice. Now, 
No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Let us pray.